0: Tolerance for free speech at the university is really waning. Hecklers abound today. The CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom, a lady named Kristen Wagner, she's the lady who argued the cake baker's case before the Supreme Court and won that case. Uh, She was invited to Yale to speak, and so she went, and at Yale... She was seated at a table getting ready to make her presentation, and the heckling started. She was literally yelled out of the room. The best hecklers represent, and can you put those two words together, Uh, but a heckler wants their ideas to be heard. Uh, They want the other side. Uh, They represent arguments from the opposing side. Now, honest dialogue is best Shouting matches are not helpful. What if I told you, maybe it seems counterintuitive to you, that there's a bit of a, uh, a shouting match in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It's a very interesting passage. But this shouting mass match matters because it's a study in courageously representing the gospel against disputers who want to tear down its glory. Come with me to Romans chapter 3. Are we ready at Calvary to engage our culture with the claims of gospel Christianity? Do we host forms of ministry which prepare our people to speak to others about the good news of Jesus? Does this place crank out students ready to engage a crazy world with the wonderful claims of Jesus Christ? Can we defend them? Are we gospel people or not? This passage will probe our readiness and preparedness to reach for this skeptical world. Now, there's a rhetorical device that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 3, 1 through 8. Now, a rhetorical device is the way you use words to make your argument. And there are different tactics. He uses a tactic that's called the diatribe. And what he does is he hosts an argument in the text with his critics, which means he gives voice to what they are saying about him and represents their ideas and then dismantles them. Listen for it. When I was at Cedarville College, now University, a group of men from our dorm and some other dorms started a habit of going to the Cincinnati Rescue Mission and hosting services. And there was one guy who heard all the excitement, and he lived right across the hall from me. He decided he would go one night to the Cincinnati Rescue Mission. Now, he was a slight young man who could run like the wind. He ran the 10,000 meter and the 5,000 meter. He was national class in the steeplechase, in the track event. And so he was a slight fellow, and so they decided on his first night, he was going to be the guy to give the testimony. So he's seated there, and he's a little nervous, understandably. And he gets up to start into his testimony, and just when he started into his testimony, there he was supported by the whole gospel team that had gone with him. A wag from the crowd yelled, Sit down, skinny! It was all that the team could do to hold the decorum together. (laughs) All of his buddies from Cedarville just busted out laughing, and they couldn't stop laughing at what was just said. And Dale's spit dried up, and somehow he got through the testimony. But sit down, skinny. Thereafter, it became the iconic greeting for this fellow, this heckler from the crowd. Sit down, skinny. So if we were walking down the sidewalk and Dale comes up, sit down, skinny. If I'd see it today, I'd say it. and We would both laugh remembering back to that incident. Well, this is the equivalent of three sit-down skinnies that Paul actually embeds in the text and answers. That's the first direction we'll go. But then you and I have to have the privilege. We have to. We will have the privilege, if God allows, to live in this good week that is before us. How is this helpful to us for living? What difference does that make? Let's go there this morning first. Hey, Apostle Paul, what are you doing? Come on, man. Remember when Elijah Cummings, the legislator from Maryland, had someone before him in a congressional uh, hearing, and he didn't like the answer, and he said, come on, man, and it became a bit of a phrase that was used then. Well, there's a sense in which the crowd has listened to Paul take on the religious crowd who thought they were okay, and what Paul's basically told him, you need Jesus, This is after he took on the self-righteous crowd that didn't want anything to do with religion. They didn't need it. They didn't need faith. Who cares about God? I'm a pretty good person. Paul said, no, you need Jesus too. And then he begins Romans 1 with the indulgent crowd. Yeah, they need Jesus too. And so his point, and that's what he's getting to in chapter 3. We're headed to 323 that some of us long ago embedded in our hearts. All, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. On his way there, we get to 3, 1 through 8, where the religious people are pushing back a little bit. The Jewish people are upset at what Paul is saying. Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jews? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much and in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way, by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us, with saying their condemnation is just. Now, Paul's heckler has three pushbacks. Let's look at them quickly this morning. Some of them require careful thinking. This is not the easiest passage to lay hold of, but if we remember, Paul puts up the arguments they're making against him, and then he dismantles them, it's helpful to read these eight verses three challenges from the heckler crowd. It wasn't sit down skinny, but it starts with, are you saying that Abraham's people are not God's chosen? Look at verses one and two. They are accusing Paul of downplaying the role of Abraham's children. The answer is no. You have misunderstood what I am saying. Much and in every way, the Jewish people have an advantage. Paul asserts, That it is an advantage to be Jewish because through Moses and Sinai, God revealed himself. The oracles of God came to humanity through the priestly role that the Jewish people had in giving us the Torah, the oracles of God. Remember, Stephen alludes in his speech in Acts 7 to the oracles of God when he's talking about Moses and says this, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. This word oracles also shows up in Hebrews 5.12 and is alluded to by Peter in 1 Peter 4.11 The word oracles means of the sayings and revelations received from God. Paul says, no, I am not guilty of the accusation of saying there's no advantage to being Jewish because God gave his revelation to the Jewish people to give to the world. They were first in line. They got the oracles of God and they have shared it with humanity. John Calvin wrote and said this, This is the principle that distinguishes our religion from all others, that we know that God has spoken to us and are fully convinced that the prophets did not speak of themselves, but as organs of the Holy Spirit uttered only that which they had been commissioned from heaven to declare. All those who wish to profit from the scriptures must first accept this as a settled principle, that the law and the prophets are not teachings handled on at the pleasure of men or produced by men's mind as their source, but are dictated by the Holy Spirit. Jewish people have the oracles of God. Of course, they have an advantage. Heckler number two, isn't God unrighteous? to judge me when my unfaithfulness makes his faithfulness look good. Now, by the way, careful thinking is required here, and you heard it on first reading of this. It's like you don't say amen. You say, huh, what is he saying? But think about it. He is dismantling yet another argument in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. And the argument is, God is unjust to judge religious people who are putting effort in. They accuse God by saying, he's unfair to judge me. Now, if you look across the page at chapter 2 and verse 11, what he's already said is God shows no impartiality. He has already affirmed that God is just and holy and right and good altogether in his judgment we can count on that that's a baseline that we understand about god because he's true to himself and true to who he is so the question then is is god just to assess me after he made the promises to the jewish folk because they were saying abraham is our forefather god picked out abraham i have jewish blood Therefore, I'm on good terms with God. And God would be unjust to judge me because I'm Jewish and Abraham was his picked out nation. Now here he quotes Psalm 51 in verse 4. Some of you remember that Psalm 51 is King David's confession after adultery with Bathsheba. Now, uh, I suppose, I don't appreciate this, but I, I suppose I have the special gift of making simple things really a lot harder to understand. <laughs> Here, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 51.4, but he doesn't quote the Hebrew text of Psalm 51.4. He actually quotes the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of Psalm 51.4, which can be read a couple different ways. So the reader scratches his head and says, who do these pronouns belong to in Psalm 51.4? That you may be justified in your words, who is the you? And prevail when you are judged. If it as it is read in the English Standard Version, we would understand the you to refer to religious people. He's engaging in a conversation with Jewish critics. That you, Jewish people, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged by God. But you can also read it that you may be justified in your words, the you being God, the judge, and prevail when you, rather than read, are judged. You judged. So there's a question in the text about what is being referred to. The accusation is: Paul, are you saying that God's character is questioned in his judgment? Can God be viewed as completely fair if he judges his own promised children? Proverbs 3:12. A father disciplines a son he loves, makes a judgment about how he is ordering his life and gets next to the person in judgment and brings correction. So being a child and being judged by the father, those are not mutually exclusive. We knew that even from a Jewish proverb. Of course, the author of the book of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews twelve six. Just because God promised doesn't mean we won't be held accountable for our response to his promise. The third heckler, and heckler number two goes with heckler number three. Then shouldn't we sin so that God's grace is accented more fully? Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul is describing Romans 1, 1, God's good news. And what he's saying is it's the story, the news about what God has done not what we do. And that he, in his grace, has reached for us and in spite of our sin, is willing, as we were singing, to forgive us and bring us in and consider us holy with the gift of righteousness that is given to us. So there was a crowd, here's another $6 word. Some of you have heard the term before, antinomian. Anti means against, Nomian comes from the root of law, namas, so against law. That is, throw off all those rules. We can live however we want. Paul, you say this is the gospel of grace. I'll tell you what, we're better than you. Uh, We think it's such a gospel of grace that we can live however we want. It doesn't matter what they're missing. Remember when John Newton, he got it. His grace has taught my heart to fear. You know what outwits sin? Grace. Which overcomes our yearning for indulgence and builds up a yearning to please the Lord. And our yearning for sinning is outstripped by our yearning to please the Lord. See, the logic of the critic goes something like this. Sinning makes God's grace look better. So let's all work at making God's grace look better. Let's do whatever we want. Now, by the way, he's going to come back to this. This is not the last time. Think of 6 1, chapter 6. Someday we'll get there. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? Answer, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 2 No, <laughs> by no means. 6.15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. He'll pick up those themes later. Paul argues that is what people are accusing him of teaching. He, he, actually, he says uh, in verse 8, they're slanderously charging me that I'm teaching this And he just says their condemnation is just. You talk about justice. That's not what I'm saying. So he takes the critics right on. Notice, Paul deftly dismisses these challenges, but why do they matter for our living? What difference does that make? And it's important that we understand what he is saying, but it's also important for us to appropriate The import of these eight verses. How does this passage teach us how to live? This passage supports our faith in three different ways. Number one, it reminds us that Christianity is coherent and fits together. There's a consistent internal logic of God's gospel, and it's wonderful, it fits together. And the apostle Paul understood it, and he was able to articulate it. And as he unfolds it, and and isn't it interesting? Sixteen chapters unfolding the gospel of God's grace. And he's methodically going. In fact, he's going through so methodically. Some of you are saying, "Mounts, why did you? You know, really three, one through eight. You know, I got to go out and live. You wouldn't believe what I've got going on. You know, what what does this have to do with it? Well." He reminds us that Christianity, gospel Christianity, is coherent and fits together. He reminds us that the gospel can withstand challenge and face the skeptic coherently. We have a reasonable faith. Do you realize some high schoolers don't believe that? You know why? By the way, do you realize that some middle-aged men don't believe that? but aren't honest enough to have the courage to say, I don't think it coherently fits together, but it does. You know who wasn't ashamed of the gospel and is showing it right now? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. We haven't helped answer our high school and college kids' good questions. I love Jason's thoughtfulness. I'm glad that he's here. Now, For starters, let's just look down the barrel at this, and this is true. Grace really doesn't make much sense. In terms of justice, it seems irrational. Grace, what we get that we don't deserve. Ask any two-year-old what is fair, they will tell you and show you. We get that instinctively with the law of God written on our hearts. If I would go steal a toy from a toddler in the nursery today, there would be a response. There's an internal sense of justice that we have. C.S. Lewis had one of his radio addresses in Mere Christianity in which he talks about that, and he makes a really good point. We understand that. But grace seems unfair. What? Be forgiven? Go scot-free? How is that just? And so I understand the, there's a sense in which grace seems, especially for the legalists, irrational. What? Scot-free? But look what he did! Look what she did. Scot free forgiveness. What's that? I'll tell you what it is. It's the gospel of the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ. And his death was so great in its accomplishment that it wipes out every stain whatsoever. Now, The gospel is straightforward. God made us. God loves us. God made us to relate to Him, and we walked away. Going our own way, believing that would turn out better. By the way, how's that working for us? God didn't leave us alone, He ran after us in Jesus Christ. That's Christmas. He faced our guilt and our sin and our shame at the cross. That's Good Friday and he resolved it so much so that before he gave up his spirit he said it is finished i cannot be the only one in the room grateful that he said it is finished the debt has been paid there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ jesus and it gets better he said he could deliver on eternal life and he was raised from the dead and he's coming to judge humanity for their responsiveness to Jesus. There's an internal consistency. That story fits reality. It works. Now, the second way this supports our faith is this. It calls us to equip our minds and hearts to thoughtfully anticipate the skeptical culture's good question. Paul incarnates what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3.15. In this passage that Lisa read so well this morning. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. He tells us what to do. Be ready to give a winsome answer for the questions raised against our hope. But he also then tells us the manner in which to do that, with gentleness and respect. Now that verse presupposes number that step one, we are engaging a skeptical culture. Because it's in the course of engaging the skeptical culture that the questions are raised that we then seek to answer. And seeking to answer the skeptical questions that they have raised, that's step two. But step two will never happen if we are not involved in step one. So I ask you this morning, are we involved in step one? In fact, we don't even have to be ready to give the answer that is sound and attractive and cogently stated and Winsome. We don't even have to be ready for step two if we're not engaged in step one. But if we are engaged in step one, you'll get get it right in the mouth with a right cross. And we need to be ready to give an answer to the good questions that are out there. And remember, the dominant cultural narrative is against gospel Christianity. So people are thoroughly acquainted with all the reasons why they believe they ought not respond to God's gospel, Romans 1.1, that Paul's explaining here. Many are ill-prepared to answer the questions. I remember my cousin married a neat guy, and she came to faith in Christ, and he was struggling. He, He just couldn't grasp the whole thing, and he had a lot of questions. And so many Sundays... Before we would ever start the services, I'd see him in in the office with my associate. And it was like peeling an onion. They'd take a run at one question. Then they'd take a run at another question. Then they'd take a run at another one. And after a series of what went on to me for months, he came to place his faith in Jesus Christ. Satisfied that the hope offered in Jesus was what he wanted with all of his might. Could you have sat in that office with him? Could I? Is that who we are? At Calvary, are we an equipping institution such that through our adult Bible fellowship classes or through our Wednesday night Calvary University or through our life groups, the sum result of that collective whole is that people are equipped to give a ready answer and have a short, cogent, clear concise, winsome answer to the good questions that people raise. We seek to renew our minds to understand the gospel and answer the questions out there. Lastly, this passage helps support our faith in this way. It centers God's faithfulness and his promise and his peop- His it centers God's faithfulness to his people and his people as the foundation of our hope to be saved. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2:13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Don't miss that term himself. It's about God, the foundation of our assurance the ground of why we have hope. He is the one doing the saving. It celebrates an assurance centered in God, not in us. And because he's God and he's faithful, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because, and don't you love this, he cannot deny himself. My hope is not built on my faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And nothing about that will ever change. The gospel is about God and what he does, his faithfulness to his promise. The issue discussed was whether or not Jewish behavior and faithfulness to God was fit for salvation. And Paul's answer is no, it's not. It's not how conformed we are to gospel holiness, but how faithful God is to gospel people. I've been with several gospel people as they die, and I've actually been a little shocked. They were not dying in any sense, hopefully. They were sifting and rummaging through their soul, telling me, I don't know if I did enough of this, and I don't know if I did enough of that, and I, I should have done this, and I should have done that. And I, what? Our salvation doesn't hang on the peg of our faithfulness. It hangs on the peg of the perfections of Jesus. And when we understand that, then that begins to change our wanter. We don't want sin like we did before because we see in Christ the beauty of a flourishing life. And that's the basis of our foundation of hope. So that when we get ready to die, it's not... Did I go to church enough and did I, was I in enough ABF classes and did I lead this or lead that? No, our assurance is based on the complete and finished and outstanding work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now, here Paul takes great pains to dip into the arguments You've been kind to listen to me try to explain their import to you. But what he's trying to do is to make the gospel of grace crystal clear for people who were relying unduly upon being religious as a means to be accepted. And Paul is arguing, give that up. Throw yourself uniquely and solely on Jesus Christ. Paul knew that our settled peace and contentment as we live for Jesus is centered on understanding the grace of God. So a publisher in California. I think they're now out of business. Somebody bought them. I think David C. Cook bought them. Publisher called, and I love the title, Gospel Life. That's what God has called us to in following Jesus, a gospel life. And that gospel life is founded upon the story of the grace of God and Jesus Christ. The perfections of his life, the sufficiency of his death. Why can we have a distinctive, joyful, fulfilling life of flourishing peace and rest? Because Jesus is such a great savior and grace is such a great treasure and hope is the bedrock of an influential life for Jesus Christ. So at Calvary, let's be clear on the gospel of grace and let's work to promote such clarity as we pass the faith on. Father, thank you for Jesus. The more we understand about him, the more humbled we are in understanding ourselves before him, and the more affection is raised in our heart to realize that he first loved us. In fact, you commended your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, for anyone here this morning relying upon their own self-righteousness or their own habits of being, whatever that is, religious, I pray that you would take down and dismantle this trust and see it uniquely and only and singularly in the perfections of Jesus who in the gift of salvation imputes to us his righteousness. Lord, give us understanding. Give us joy. Give us assurance. Give us peace. We love you. We worship you. May you find us with responsive hearts. I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.